Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 38 of A Journey into the Interior of the Earth by Jules Verne. Translated by Frederick Mallison. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 38 The Professor in His Chair Again to understand this apostrophe of my uncle's, made to absent French savants, it will be necessary to allude to an event of high importance in the paleontological point of view, which had occurred a little while before our departure. On the 28th of March, 1863, some excavators working under the direction of Monsieur Boucher de Pet in the stone quarries of Moulin-Quignon near Abbeville, in the department of Somme, found a human jawbone fourteen feet beneath the surface. It was the first fossil of this nature that had ever been brought to light. Not far distant were found stone hatchets and flint arrowheads, stained and encased by lapse of time with a uniform coat of rust. The noise of this discovery was very great, not in France alone, but in England and in Germany. Several savants of the French Institute, and amongst them Messrs. Milne-Edwards and de Quatrefage, saw at once the importance of this discovery proved to demonstration the genuineness of the bone in question, and became the most ardent defendants in what the English called this trial of a jawbone. To the geologists of the United Kingdom, who believed in the certainty of the fact, Messrs. Falconer, Busk, Carpenter, and others, scientific Germans were soon joined, and amongst them the forwardest, the most fiery, and the most enthusiastic was my uncle Liedenbrock. Therefore, the genuineness of a fossil human relic of the quaternary period seemed to be incontestably proved and admitted. It is true that this theory met with a most obstinate opponent in M. Elie de Beaumont. This high authority maintained that the soil of Moulin-Quignon was not diluvial at all, but was of much more recent formation, and, agreeing in that with Cuvier, he refused to admit that the human species could be contemporary with the animals of the quaternary period. My uncle Liedenbrock, along with the great body of the geologists, had maintained his ground, disputed and argued, until Monsieur Elie de Beaumont stood almost alone in his opinion. We knew all these details, but we were not aware that, since our departure, the question had advanced to farther stages. Other similar maxillaries, though belonging to the individuals of various types and different nations, were found in the loose grey soil of certain grottoes in France, Switzerland, and Belgium, as well as weapons, tools, earthen utensils, bones of children and adults. The existence, therefore, of man in the quaternary period seemed to become daily more certain. Nor was this all. Fresh discoveries of remains in the Pliocene formation had emboldened other geologists to refer back to the human species to a higher antiquity still. It is true that these remains were not human bones, but objects bearing the traces of his handiwork, such as fossil leg-bones of animals, sculptured and carved evidently by the hand of man. Thus at one bound the record of the existence of man receded far back into the history of ages past. 
He was a predecessor of the Mastodon. He was a contemporary of the Southern Elephant. He lived a hundred thousand years ago, when, according to geologists, the Pliocene formation was in progress. Such, then, was the state of paleontological science, and what we knew of it was sufficient to explain our behavior in the presence of this stupendous Golgotha. Anyone may now understand the frenzied excitement of my uncle, when, twenty yards farther on, he found himself face to face with a primitive man. It was a perfectly recognizable human body. Had some particular soil, like that of the cemetery Saint-Michel at Bordeaux, preserved it thus for so many ages? It might be so. But this dried corpse, with its parchment-like skin drawn tightly over the bony frame, the limbs still preserving their shape, sound teeth, abundant hair, and finger and toenails of frightful length, this desiccated mummy startled us by appearing just as it had lived countless ages ago. I stood mute before this apparition of remote antiquity. My uncle, usually so garrulous, was struck dumb likewise. We raised the body. We stood it up against a rock. It seemed to stare at us out of its empty orbits. We sounded with our knuckles his hollow frame. After some moment's silence, the professor was himself again. Otto Liedenbrock, yielding to his nature, forgot all the circumstances of our eventful journey, forgot where we were standing, forgot the vaulted cavern which contained us. No doubt he was in mind back again in his Johannium, holding forth to his pupils, for he assumed his learned air, and addressing himself to an imaginary audience, he proceeded thus. Gentlemen, I have the honor to introduce to you a man of the quaternary or post-tertiary system. Eminent geologists have denied his existence, others no less eminent have affirmed it. The St. Thomases of paleontology, if they were here, might now touch him with their fingers, and would be obliged to acknowledge their error. I am quite aware that science has to be on its guard with discoveries of this kind. I know what capital enterprising individuals like Barnum have made out of fossil men. I have heard the tale of the knee-pan of Ajax, the pretended body of Orestes, claimed to have been found by the Spartans, and of the body of Asterius, ten cubits long, of which Pausanias speaks. I have read the reports of the skeleton of Trapani, found in the fourteenth century, and which was, at the time, identified as that of Polyphemus, and the history of the giant unearthed in the sixteenth century near Palermo. You know, as well as I do, gentlemen, the analysis made at Lucerne in 1577 of those huge bones which the celebrated Dr. Fetus Plater affirmed to be those of a giant nineteen feet high. I have gone through the treatises of Cassanion, and all those memoirs, pamphlets, answers, and rejoinders published respecting the skeleton of Tutabacus, the invader of Gaul, dug out of a sandpit in the Dauphiné in 1613. In the eighteenth century, I would have stood up for Schweitzer's pre-Adamite man against Peter Campet. I have perused a writing entitled Gigan. Here my uncle's unfortunate infirmity met him, that of being unable in public to pronounce hard words. The pamphlet entitled Gigan. He could go no further. Gigantia. It was not to be done. The unlucky word would not come out. At the Johannium there would have been a laugh. Gigantos theology. At last the professor burst out between two words which I shall not record here. 
Then, rushing on with renewed vigor, and with great animation, "'Yes, gentlemen, I know all these things and more. I know that Cuvier and Blumenbach have recognized in these bones nothing more remarkable than the bones of the mammoth and other mammals of the post-tertiary period. But in the presence of this specimen to doubt would be to insult science. There stands the body. You may see it, touch it. It is not a mere skeleton, it is an entire body, preserved for a purely anthropological end and purpose." I was good enough not to contradict this startling assertion. If I could only wash it in a solution of sulfuric acid, pursued my uncle, I should be able to clear it from all the earthly particles and the shells which are encrusted about it. But I do not possess that valuable solvent. Yet, such as it is, the body shall tell us its own wonderful story. Here the professor laid hold of the fossil skeleton, and handled it with the skill of a dexterous showman. You see, he said, that it is not six feet long and that we are still separated by a long interval from the pretended race of giants. As for the family to which it belongs, it is evidently Caucasian. It is the white race, our own. The skull of this fossil is a regular oval, or rather ovoid. It exhibits no prominent cheekbones, no projecting jaws. It presents no appearance of that prognathism which diminishes the facial angle. Measure that angle. It is nearly ninety degrees but I will go further in my deductions, and I will affirm that this specimen of the human family is of the Japhetic race, which has since spread from the Indies to the Atlantic. Don't smile, gentlemen." Nobody was smiling, but the learned professor was frequently disturbed by the broad smiles provoked by his learned eccentricities. "'Yes,' he pursued with animation, "'this is a fossil man! the contemporary of the mastodons whose remains filled this amphitheatre. But if you ask me how he came here, how those strata on which he lay slipped down into this enormous hollow in the globe, I confess I cannot answer that question. No doubt, in the post-tertiary period, considerable commotions were still disturbing the crust of the earth. The long-continued cooling of the globe produced chasms, fissures, clefts, and faults, into which, very probably, portions of the upper earth may have fallen. I make no rash assertions, but there is the man surrounded by his own works, by hatchets, by flint arrowheads, which are the characteristics of the Stone Age. And unless he came here, like myself, as a tourist on a visit and as a pioneer of science, I can entertain no doubt of the authenticity of his remote origin." The professor ceased to speak, and the audience broke out into loud and unanimous applause for, of course, my uncle was right, and wiser men than his nephew would have had some trouble to refute his statements. Another remarkable thing. This fossil body was not the only one in this immense catacomb. We came upon other bodies at every step amongst this mortal dust, and my uncle might select the most curious of these specimens to demolish the incredulity of skeptics. In fact, it was a wonderful spectacle, that of these generations of men and animals commingled in a common cemetery. Then one very serious question arose presently which we scarcely dared to suggest. Had all those creatures slided through a great fissure in the crust of the earth, down to the shores of the Liedenbrock Sea, when they were dead and turning to dust? Or 
had they lived and grown and died here in this subterranean world under a false sky, just like the inhabitants of the upper earth? Until the present time we had seen alive only marine monsters and fishes. Might not some living man, some native of the abyss, be yet a wanderer below on this desert strand? End of chapter 38《Chapter 39 of A Journey into the Interior of the Earth by Jules Verne, translated by Frederick Mallison. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 39 Forest Scenery Illuminated by Electricity For another half-hour we trod upon a pavement of bones. We pushed on, impelled by our burning curiosity. What other marvels did this cavern contain? What new treasures lay here for science to unfold? I was prepared for any surprise, my imagination was ready for any astonishment, however astounding. We had long lost sight of the seashore behind the hills of bones. The rash professor, careless of losing his way, hurried me forward. We advanced in silence, bathed in luminous electric fluid. By some phenomenon which I am unable to explain, it lighted up all sides of every object equally. Such was its diffusiveness, there being no central point from which the light emanated, that shadows no longer existed. You might have thought yourself under the rays of a vertical sun in a tropical region at noonday and the height of summer. No vapor was visible. The rocks, the distant mountains, a few isolated clumps of forest trees in the distance, presented a weird and wonderful aspect under these totally new conditions of a universal diffusion of light we were like Hoffman's shadowless man. After walking a mile we reached the outskirts of a vast forest, but not one of those forests of fungi which bordered Port Grauben. Here was the vegetation of the tertiary period in its fullest blaze of magnificence. Tall palms, belonging to species no longer living, splendid palmacites, firs, yews, cypress trees, thujas, Representatives of the conifers were linked together by a tangled network of long climbing plants. A soft carpet of moss and hepaticas luxuriously clothed the soil. A few sparkling streams ran almost in silence under what would have been the shade of trees, but that there was no shadow. On their banks grew tree ferns similar to those we grow in hothouses. But a remarkable feature was the total absence of color in all those trees, shrubs, and plants growing without the life-giving heat and light of the sun. Everything seemed mixed up and confounded in one uniform silver-gray or light-brown tint, like that of fading and faded leaves. Not a green leaf anywhere, and the flowers, which were abundant enough in the tertiary period which first gave birth to flowers, looked like brown paper flowers, without color or scent. My uncle Liedenbrock ventured to penetrate under this colossal grove. I followed him not without fear. Since nature had here provided vegetable nourishment, why should not the terrible mammals be there too? I perceived in the broad clearings left by fallen trees decayed with age, leguminose plants, acerini, rubicini, and many other eatable shrubs, dear to ruminant animals at every period. Then I observed, mingled together in confusion, trees of countries far apart on the surface of the globe. The oak and the palm were growing side by side, the Australian eucalyptus leaned against the Norwegian pine, 
the birch-tree of the north mingled its foliage with the New Zealand cowries. It was enough to distract the most ingenious classifier of terrestrial botany. Suddenly I halted. I drew back my uncle. The diffused light revealed the smallest object in the dense and distant thickets. I had thought I saw—no, I did see, with my own eyes, vast colossal forms moving amongst the trees. They were gigantic animals. It was a herd of mastodons, not fossil remains, but living and resembling those the bones of which were found in the marshes of Ohio in 1801. I saw those huge elephants whose long, flexible trunks were grouting and turning up the soil under the trees like a legion of serpents. I could hear the crashing noise of their long ivory tusks boring into the old decaying trunks. The boughs cracked and the leaves torn away by cartloads went down the cavernous throats of the vast brutes. So then, the dream in which I had had a vision of the prehistoric world, of the tertiary and post-tertiary periods, was now realized. And there we were alone, in the bowels of the earth, at the mercy of its wild inhabitants. My uncle was gazing with intense and eager interest. "'Come on,' he said, seizing my arm. "'Forward! Forward!' "'No, I will not!' I cried. "'We have no firearms. What could we do in the midst of a herd of those four-footed giants? Come away, uncle, come!' "'No human being may with safety dare the anger of these monstrous beasts!' "'No human creature?' replied my uncle in a lower voice. "'You are wrong, Axel. Look, look down there. I fancy I see a living creature similar to ourselves. It is a man.' I looked, shaking my head incredulously. But though at first I was unbelieving, I had to yield to the evidence of my senses. In fact, at a distance of a quarter of a mile, leaning against the trunk of a gigantic cowrie, stood a human being the Proteus of those subterranean regions, a new son of Neptune, watching this countless herd of mastodons. Imanis picoris custos emanior ipsi, the shepherd of giant herds and huger still himself. Yes, truly huger still himself. It was no longer a fossil being like him whose dry remains we had easily lifted up in the field of bones. It was a giant, able to control those monsters. In stature he was at least twelve feet high. His head, huge and unshapely as a buffalo's, was half hidden in the thick and tangled growth of his unkempt hair. It most resembled the mane of the primitive elephant. In his hand he wielded with ease an enormous bough, a staff worthy of this shepherd of the geologic period. We stood petrified and speechless with amazement. But he might see us. We must fly. Come, do come. I said to my uncle, who for once allowed himself to be persuaded. In another quarter of an hour our nimble heels had carried us beyond the reach of this horrible monster. And yet, now that I can reflect quietly, now that my spirit has grown calm again, now that months have slipped by since this strange and supernatural meeting, what am I to think? What am I to believe? I must conclude that it was impossible that our senses had been deceived that our eyes did not see what we supposed they saw. No human being lives in this subterranean world. No generation of men dwells in those inferior caverns of the globe, unknown to and unconnected with the inhabitants of its surface. It is absurd to believe it. I had rather admit that it may have been some animal whose structure resembled the human, 
some ape or baboon of the early geological ages, some protopithica or some mesopithica, some early or middle ape, like that discovered by Mr. Larte in the bone cave of Sansau. But this creature surpassed in stature all the measurements known in modern paleontology. But that a man, a living man, and therefore whole generations doubtless besides, should be buried there in the bowels of the earth is impossible. However, we had left behind us the luminous forest, dumb with astonishment, overwhelmed and struck down with a terror which amounted to stupefaction. We kept running on for fear the horrible monster might be on our track. It was a flight, a fall, like that fearful pulling and dragging which is peculiar to nightmare. Instinctively we got back to the Liedenbrock Sea, and I cannot say into what vagaries my mind would not have carried me but for a circumstance which brought me back to practical matters. Although I was certain that we were now treading upon soil not hitherto touched by our feet, I often perceived groups of rocks which reminded me of those about Port Grauben. Besides, this seemed to confirm the indications of the needle, and to show that we had against our will returned to the north of the Liedenbrock Sea. Occasionally we felt quite convinced. Brooks and waterfalls were tumbling everywhere from the projections in the rocks. I thought I recognized the bed of Sertebrand, our faithful Hansbach, and the grotto in which I had recovered life and consciousness. Then, a few paces farther on, the arrangement of the cliffs, the appearance of an unrecognized stream, or the strange outline of a rock came to throw me again into doubt. I communicated my doubts to my uncle. Like myself, he hesitated. He could recognize nothing again amidst this monotonous scene. Evidently, said I, we have not landed again at our original starting point, but the storm has carried us a little higher, and if we follow the shore we shall find Port Grauben. If that is the case, it will be useless to continue our exploration, and we had better return to our raft. But, Axel, are you not mistaken? It is difficult to speak decidedly, uncle, for all these rocks are so very much alike. Yet I think I recognize the promontory at the foot of which Hans constructed our launch. We must be very near the little port, if indeed this is not it, I added, examining a creek which I thought I recognized. No, Axel, we should at least find our own traces, and I see nothing. But I do see, I cried, darting upon an object lying on the sand and I showed my uncle a rusty dagger which I had just picked up. "'Come,' said he, "'had you this weapon with you?' "'I? No, certainly. But you, perhaps?' "'Not that I am aware,' said the professor. "'I have never had this object in my possession.' "'Well, this is strange.' "'No, Axel, it is very simple. The Icelanders often wear arms of this kind. This must have belonged to Hans, and he has lost it.' I shook my head. Hans had never had an object like this in his possession. "'Did it not belong to some pre-Adamite warrior?' I cried. "'To some living man, contemporary with the huge cattle-driver? But no, this is not a relic of the Stone Age. It is not even of the Iron Age. This blade is steel.' My uncle stopped me abruptly, on my way to a dissertation which would have taken me a long way, and said coolly, be calm, Axel, and reasonable. This dagger belongs to the sixteenth century. It is a poniard, such as gentlemen carried in their belts to give the coup de grace. Its origin is Spanish. 
It was never either yours or mine or the hunter's, nor did it belong to any of those human beings who may or may not inhabit this inner world. See, it was never jagged like this by cutting men's throats. Its blade is coated with a rust neither a day nor a year nor a hundred years old." The professor was getting excited according to his want, and was allowing his imagination to run away with him. "'Axel, we are on the way towards the grand discovery. This blade has been left on the strand for from one to three hundred years, and has blunted its edge upon the rocks that fringe this subterranean sea. But it has not come alone. It has not twisted itself out of shape. Someone has been here before us. Yes, a man has. And who was that man? A man who has engraved his name somewhere with that dagger. That man wanted once more to mark the way to the center of the earth. Let us look about, look about!" And, wonderfully interested, we peered all along the high wall, peeping into every fissure which might open out into a gallery. And so we arrived at a place where the shore was much narrower. Here the sea came to lap the foot of the steep cliff, leaving a passage no wider than a couple of yards. Between two boldly projecting rocks appeared the mouth of a dark tunnel. There, upon a granite slab, appeared two mysterious graven letters, half eaten away by time. They were the initials of the bold and daring traveller. "'A.S.' shouted my uncle. "'Arn Sacknessum! Arn Sacknessum everywhere!' End of chapter 39「Forty of A Journey into the Interior of the Earth by Jules Verne, translated by Frederick Mallison. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Forty Preparations for Blasting a Passage to the Center of the Earth. Since the start upon this marvelous pilgrimage, I had been through so many astonishments that I might well be excused for thinking myself well hardened against any further surprise. Yet at the sight of these two letters, engraved on this spot three hundred years ago, I stood aghast in dumb amazement. Not only were the initials of the learned alchemist visible upon the living rock, but there lay the iron point with which the letters had been engraved. I could no longer doubt of the existence of that wonderful traveller and of the fact of his unparalleled journey, without the most glaring incredulity. Whilst these reflections were occupying me, Professor Liedenbrock had launched into a somewhat rhapsodical eulogium, of which Arne Sagnusum was of course the hero. "'Thou marvellous genius!' he cried. "'Thou hast not forgotten one indication which might serve to lay open to mortals the road through the terrestrial crust. And thy fellow-creatures may even now, after the lapse of three centuries, again trace thy footsteps through these deep and darksome ways.' You reserve the contemplation of these wonders for other eyes besides your own. Your name, graven from stage to stage, leads the bold follower of your footsteps to the very centre of our planet's core, and there again we shall find your own name written with your own hand. I too will inscribe my name upon this dark granite page. But for ever henceforth let this cape that advances into the sea discovered by yourself be known by your own illustrious name. Cape Sacknessum. Such were the glowing words of panegyric which fell upon my attentive ear, 
and I could not resist the sentiment of enthusiasm with which I too was infected. The fire of zeal kindled afresh in me. I forgot everything. I dismissed from my mind the past perils of the journey, the future danger of our return. That which another had done, I supposed, we might also do, and nothing that was not superhuman appeared impossible to me. Forward! Forward! I cried. I was already darting down the gloomy tunnel when the professor stopped me. He, the man of impulse, counseled patience and coolness. Let us first return to Hans, he said, and bring the raft to this spot. I obeyed, not without dissatisfaction, and passed out rapidly among the rocks on the shore. I said, Uncle, do you know it seems to me that circumstances have wonderfully befriended us hitherto? You think so, Axel? No doubt. Even the tempest has put us on the right way. Blessings on that storm! It has brought us back to this coast from which fine weather would have carried us far away. Suppose we had touched with our prow, the prow of a rudder, the southern shore of the Liedenbrock Sea, what would have become of us? We should never have seen the name of Sacknessum, and we should at this moment be imprisoned on a rock-bound, impassable coast. Yes, Axel, it is providential that, whilst supposing we were steering south, we should have just got back north at Cape Sacknessum. I must say that this is astonishing, and that I feel I have no way to explain it. What does that signify, uncle? Our business is not to explain facts, but to use them. Certainly. But, well, uncle, we are going to resume the northern route, and to pass under the north countries of Europe, under Sweden, Russia, Siberia, who knows where, instead of burrowing under the deserts of Africa, or perhaps the waves of the Atlantic, and that is all I want to know. Yes, Axel, you are right. It is all for the best, since we have left that weary, horizontal sea which led us nowhere. Now we shall go down, down, down. Do you know that it is now only fifteen hundred leagues to the center of the globe? Is that all? I cried. Why, that is nothing. Let us start. March! All this crazy talk was going on still when we met the hunter. Everything was made ready for our instant departure. Every bit of cordage was put on board. We took our places, and with our sails set, Hans steered us along the coast to Cape Sacknessum. The wind was unfavorable to a species of launch not calculated for shallow water. In many places we were obliged to push ourselves along with iron-pointed sticks. Often the sunken rocks just beneath the surface obliged us to deviate from our straight course. At last, after three hours sailing, about six in the evening, we reached a place suitable for our landing. I jumped ashore, followed by my uncle and the Icelander. This short passage had not served to cool my ardor. On the contrary, I even proposed to burn our ship, to prevent the possibility of return. But my uncle would not consent to that. I thought him singularly lukewarm. "'At least,' I said, "'don't let us lose a minute.' "'Yes, yes, lad,' he replied. "'But first let us examine this new gallery, to see if we shall require our ladders.' My uncle put his rumcorf's apparatus in action. The raft moored to the shore was left alone. The mouth of the tunnel was not twenty yards from us. 
and our party, with myself at the head, made for it without a moment's delay. The aperture, which was almost round, was about five feet in diameter. The dark passage was cut out in the live rock and lined with a coat of eruptive matter which formerly issued from it. The interior was level with the ground outside, so that we were able to enter without difficulty. We were following a horizontal plane, when, only six paces in, our progress was interrupted by an enormous block just across our way. "'A cursed rock!' I cried in a passion, finding myself suddenly confronted by an impassable obstacle. Right and left we searched in vain for a way up and down, side to side. There was no getting any farther. I felt fearfully disappointed, and I would not admit that the obstacle was final. I stopped, I looked underneath the block, no opening. Above, granite still. Hans passed his lamp over every portion of the barrier in vain. We must give up all hope of passing it. I sat down in despair. My uncle strode from side to side in the narrow passage. "'But how was it with Sagnusum?' I cried. "'Yes,' said my uncle. "'Was he stopped by this stone barrier?' "'No, no,' I replied with animation. "'This fragment of rock has been shaken down by some shock or convulsion, or by one of those magnetic storms which agitate these regions, and has blocked up the passage which lay open to him. Many years have elapsed since the return of Sacknessum to the surface, and the fall of this huge fragment. Is it not evident that this gallery was once the way open to the course of the lava, and that at that time there must have been a free passage? See here are recent fissures grooving and channeling the granite roof. This roof itself is formed of fragments of rock carried down, of enormous stones, as if by some giant's hand. But at one time the expulsive force was greater than usual, and this block, like the falling keystone of a ruined arch, has slipped down to the ground and blocked up the way. It is only an accidental obstruction, not met by Sacknessum, and if we don't destroy it, we shall be unworthy to reach the center of the earth. Such was my sentence. The soul of the professor had passed into me. The genius of discovery possessed me wholly. I forgot the past, I scorned the future. I gave not a thought to the things of the surface of this globe into which I had dived, its cities and its sunny plains, Hamburg and the Königstrasse, even poor Grauben, who must have given us up for lost, all were for the time dismissed from the pages of my memory. Well cried my uncle, let us make our way with pickaxes. Too hard for the pickaxe. Well then, the spade. That would take us too long. What then? Why, gunpowder, to be sure. Let us mine the obstacle and blow it up. Oh, yes, it is only a bit of rock to blast. Hans, to work, cried my uncle. The Icelander returned to the raft, and soon came back with an iron bar which he made use of to bore a hole for the charge. This was no easy work. A hole was to be made large enough to hold fifty pounds of gun-cotton, whose expansive force is four times that of gunpowder. I was terribly excited. Whilst Hans was at work, I was actively helping my uncle to prepare a slow match of wetted powder encased in linen. "'This will do it,' I said. It will, replied my uncle. By midnight, our mining preparations were over. The charge was rammed into the hole, 
and the slow match uncoiled along the gallery showed its end outside the open end. A spark would now develop the whole of our preparations into activity. Tomorrow, said the professor. I had to be resigned and to wait six long hours. End of chapter 40《Chapter 41 of A Journey into the Interior of the Earth by Jules Verne, translated by Frederick Mallison. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 41 The Great Explosion and the Rush Down Below The next day, Thursday, August 27, is a well-remembered date in our subterranean journey. It never returns to my memory without sending through me a shudder of horror and a palpitation of the heart. From that hour we had no further occasion for the exercise of reason or judgment or skill or contrivance. We were henceforth to be hurled along, the playthings of the fierce elements of the deep. At six we were afoot. The moment drew near to clear away by blasting through the opposing mass of granite. I begged for the honor of lighting the fuse. This duty done, I was to join my companions on the raft, which had not yet been unloaded. We should then push off as far as we could and avoid the dangers arising from the explosion, the effects of which were not likely to be confined to the rock itself. The fuse was calculated to burn ten minutes before setting fire to the mine. I therefore had sufficient time to get away to the raft. I prepared to fulfill my task with some anxiety. After a hasty meal, my uncle and the hunter embarked whilst I remained on shore. I was supplied with a lighted lantern to set fire to the fuse. "'Now go,' said my uncle, "'and return immediately to us.' "'Don't be uneasy,' I replied. "'I will not play by the way.' I immediately proceeded to the mouth of the tunnel. I opened my lantern. I laid hold of the end of the match. The professor stood, chronometer in hand. "'Ready?' he cried. "'Aye!' "'Fire!' I instantly plunged the end of the fuse into the lantern. It spluttered and flamed, and I ran at the top of my speed to the raft. "'Come on board, quickly, and let us push off!' Hans, with a vigorous thrust, sent us from the shore. The raft shot twenty fathoms out to sea. It was a moment of intense excitement. The professor was watching the hand of the chronometer. Five minutes more,' he said. Four, three, by pulse beat half-seconds, two, one, down, granite rocks, down with you!' What took place at that moment? I believe I did not hear the dull roar of the explosion. But the rocks suddenly assumed a new arrangement. They rent asunder like a curtain. I saw a bottomless pit open on the shore. The sea, lashed into sudden fury, rose up in an enormous billow, the ridge of which the unhappy raft was uplifted bodily in the air with all its crew and cargo. We all three fell down flat. In less than a second we were in deep, unfathomable darkness. Then I felt as if not only myself but the raft also had no support beneath. I thought it was sinking, but it was not so. I wanted to speak to my uncle but the roaring of the waves prevented him from hearing even the sound of my voice. 
In spite of darkness, noise, astonishment, and terror, I then understood what had taken place. On the other side of the blown-up rock was an abyss. The explosion had caused a kind of earthquake in this fissured and abysmal region. A great gulf had opened, and the sea, now changed into a torrent, was hurrying us along into it. I gave myself up for lost. An hour passed away, two hours perhaps, I cannot tell. We clutched each other fast to save ourselves from being thrown off the raft. We felt violent shocks whenever we were borne heavily against the craggy projections. Yet these shocks were not very frequent, from which I concluded that the gully was widening. It was no doubt the same road that Sacknessum had taken. But instead of walking peaceably down it, as he had done, we were carrying a whole sea along with us. These ideas, it will be understood, presented themselves to my mind in a vague and undetermined form. I had difficulty in associating any ideas together during this headlong race, which seemed like a vertical descent. To judge by the air which was whistling past me and made a whizzing in my ears, we were moving faster than the fastest express trains. To light a torch under these conditions would have been impossible, and our last electric apparatus had been shattered by the force of the explosion. I was therefore much surprised to see a clear light shining near me. It lighted up the calm and unmoved countenance of Hans. The skillful huntsman had succeeded in lighting the lantern, and although it flickered so much as to threaten to go out, it threw a fitful light across the awful darkness. I was right in my supposition. It was a wide gallery. The dim light could not show us both its walls at once. The fall of the waters which were carrying us away exceeded that of the swiftest rapids in American rivers. Its surface seemed composed of a sheaf of arrows hurled with inconceivable force. I cannot convey my impressions by a better comparison. The raft, occasionally seized by an eddy, spun round as it still flew along. When it approached the walls of the gallery, I threw on them the light of the lantern, and I could judge somewhat of the velocity of our speed by noticing how the jagged projections of the rocks spun into endless ribbons and bands, so that we seemed confined within a network of shifting lines. I supposed we were running at the rate of thirty leagues an hour. My uncle and I gazed on each other with haggard eyes, clinging to the stump of the mast, which had snapped asunder at the first shock of our great catastrophe. We kept our backs to the wind, not to be stifled by the rapidity of a movement which no human power could check. Hours passed away, no change in our situation, but a discovery came to complicate matters and make them worse. In seeking to put our cargo into somewhat better order, I found that the greater part of the articles embarked had disappeared at the moment of the explosion, when the sea broke in upon us with such violence. I wanted to know exactly what we had saved, and with the lantern in my hand I began my examination. Of our instruments none were saved but the compass and the chronometer. Our stock of ropes and ladders was reduced to the bit of cord rolled round the stump of the mast. Not a spade, not a pickaxe, not a hammer was left us, and, irreparable disaster, we had only one day's provisions left. I searched every nook and corner, every crack and cranny in the raft. There was nothing. Our provisions were reduced to one bit of salt meat and a few biscuits. I stared at our failing supplies stupidly. 
I refused to take in the gravity of our loss. And yet what was the use of troubling myself? If we had had provisions enough for months, how could we get out of the abyss into which we were being hurled by an irresistible torrent? Why should we fear the horrors of famine, when death was swooping down upon us in a multitude of other forms? Would there be time left to die of starvation? Yet, by an inexplicable play of the imagination, I forgot my present dangers to contemplate the threatening future. Was there any chance of escaping from the fury of this impetuous torrent, and of returning to the surface of the globe? I could not form the slightest conjecture how or when. But one chance in a thousand or ten thousand is still a chance, whilst death from starvation would leave us not the smallest hope in the world. The thought came into my mind to declare the whole truth to my uncle, to show him the dreadful straits to which we were reduced, and to calculate how long we might yet expect to live. But I had the courage to preserve silence. I wished to leave him cool and self-possessed. At that moment the light from our lantern began to sink by little and little, and then went out entirely. The wick had burned itself out. Black night reigned again and there was no hope left of being able to dissipate the palpable darkness. We had yet a torch left, but we could not have kept it alight. Then, like a child, I closed my eyes firmly, not to see the darkness. After a considerable lapse of time our speed redoubled. I could perceive it by the sharpness of the currents that blew past my face. The descent became steeper. I believe we were no longer sliding but falling down. I had an impression that we were dropping vertically. My uncle's hand and the vigorous arm of Hans held me fast. Suddenly, after a space of time that I could not measure, I felt a shock. The raft had not struck against any hard resistance, but had suddenly been checked in its fall. A water-spout, an immense liquid column, was beating upon the surface of the waters. I was suffocating. I was drowning but this sudden flood was not of long duration. In a few seconds I found myself in the air again, which I inhaled with all the force of my lungs. My uncle and Hans were still holding me fast by the arms, and the raft was still carrying us. End of chapter 41「Chapter 42 of a Journey into the Interior of the Earth by Jules Verne. Translated by Frederick Mallison. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 42 Headlong Speed Upward Through the Horrors of Darkness. It might have been, as I guessed, about ten at night. The first of my senses which came into play after this last bout was that of hearing. All at once I could hear and it was a real exercise of the sense of hearing. I could hear the silence in the gallery after the din which for hours had stunned me. At last these words of my uncle's came to me like a vague murmuring. "'We are going up!' "'What do you mean?' I cried. "'Yes, we are going up! Up!' I stretched out my arm. I touched the wall and drew back my hand, bleeding. We were ascending with extreme rapidity. The torch! The torch!" cried the professor. Not without difficulty, Hans succeeded in lighting the torch, and the flame, preserving its upward tendency, 
through enough light to show us what kind of a place we were in. "'Just as I thought,' said the professor. "'We are in a tunnel not four-and-twenty feet in diameter. The water had reached the bottom of the gulf. It is now rising to its level and carrying us with it. Where to? I cannot tell, but we must be ready for anything. We are mounting at a speed which seems to me of fourteen feet in a second, or ten miles an hour. At this rate we shall get on. Yes, if nothing stops us. If this well has an aperture. But suppose it to be stopped. If the air is condensed by the pressure of this column of water we shall be crushed. Axel, replied the professor with perfect coolness, our situation is almost desperate. But there are some chances of deliverance, and it is these that I am considering. If at every instant we may perish, so at every instant we may be saved. Let us then be prepared to seize upon the smallest advantage. But what shall we do now? Recruit our strength by eating. At these words I fixed a haggard eye upon my uncle. That which I had been so unwilling to confess at last had to be told. Eat, did you say? Yes, at once. The professor added a few words in Danish, but Hans shook his head mournfully. What? cried my uncle. Have we lost our provisions? Yes, here is all we have left. One bit of salt meat for the three. My uncle stared at me as if he could not understand. Well, said I, do you think we have any chance of being saved? My question was unanswered. An hour passed away. I began to feel the pangs of a violent hunger. My companions were suffering too, and not one of us dared touch this wretched remnant of our goodly store. But now we were mounting up with excessive speed. Sometimes the air would cut our breath short, as is experienced by aeronauts ascending too rapidly. But whilst they suffer from cold in proportion to their rise, we were beginning to feel a contrary effect. The heat was increasing in a manner to cause us the most fearful anxiety, and certainly the temperature was at this moment at the height of a hundred degrees Fahrenheit. What could be the meaning of such a change? Up to this time facts had supported the theories of Davy and of Liedenbrock. Until now particular conditions of non-conducting rocks, electricity, and magnetism had tempered the laws of nature, giving us only a moderately warm climate, for the theory of a central fire remained in my estimation the only one that was true and explicable. Were we then turning back to where the phenomena of central heat ruled in all their rigor and would reduce the most refractory rocks to the state of a molten liquid? I feared this, and said to the professor, if we are neither drowned nor shattered to pieces, nor starved to death, there is still the chance that we may be burned alive and reduced to ashes." At this he shrugged his shoulders and returned to his thoughts. Another hour passed, and except some slight increase in the temperature nothing new had happened. "'Come,' said he, "'we must determine upon something.' "'Determine on what?' said I. "Yes." We must recruit our strength by carefully rationing ourselves, and so prolong our existence by a few hours. But we shall be reduced to a very great weakness at last. And our last hour is not far off. Well, if there is a chance of safety, if a moment for active exertion presents itself, 
where should we find the required strength if we allowed ourselves to be enfeebled by hunger? Well, uncle, when this bit of meat has been devoured, what shall we have left? Nothing, Axel, nothing at all. But will it do you any more good to devour it with your eyes than with your teeth? Your reasoning has in it neither sense nor energy." "'Then don't you despair?' I cried irritably. "'No, certainly not,' was the professor's firm reply. "'What? Do you think there is any chance of safety left?' "'Yes, I do. As long as the heart beats, as long as body and soul keep together, I cannot admit that any creature endowed with a will has need to despair of life." Resolute words, these. The man who could speak so, under such circumstances, was of no ordinary type. "'Finally, what do you mean to do?' I asked. "'Eat what is left to the last crumb, and recruit our fading strength. This meal will be our last, perhaps. So let it be. But at any rate, we shall once more be men, and not exhausted, empty bags." "'Well, let us consume it, then,' I cried. My uncle took the piece of meat and the few biscuits which had escaped from the general destruction. He divided them into three equal portions and gave one to each. This made about a pound of nourishment for each. The professor ate his greedily, with a kind of feverish rage. I ate without pleasure almost with disgust. Hans, quietly, moderately masticating his small mouthfuls without any noise, and relishing them with the calmness of a man above all anxiety about the future. By diligent search he had found a flask of Holland's. He offered it to us each in turn, and this generous beverage cheered us up slightly. "'For Treflig,' said Hans, drinking in his turn. "'Excellent,' replied my uncle. A glimpse of hope had returned, although without cause. But our last meal was over, and it was now five in the morning. Man is so constituted that health is a purely negative state. Hunger, once satisfied, it is difficult for a man to imagine the horrors of starvation. They cannot be understood without being felt. Therefore it was that, after our long fast, these few mouthfuls of meat and biscuit made us triumph over our past agonies. But as soon as the meal was done, we each of us fell deep into thought. What was Hans thinking of, that man of the far west, but who seemed ruled by the fatalist doctrines of the east? As for me, my thoughts were made up of remembrances, and they carried me up to the surface of the globe, of which I ought never to have taken leave the house in the Königstrasse, my poor dear Grauben, that kind soul Martha, flitted like visions before my eyes, and in the dismal moanings which from time to time reached my ears I thought I could distinguish the roar of the traffic of the great cities upon earth. My uncle still had his eye upon his work. Torch in hand he tried to gather some idea of our situation from the observation of the strata. This calculation could, at best, be but a vague approximation. But a learned man is always a philosopher when he succeeds in remaining cool, and assuredly Professor Liedenbrock possessed this quality to a surprising degree. I could hear him murmuring geological terms. I could understand them, and in spite of myself I felt interested in this last geological study. Eruptive granite, 
he was saying. We are still in the primitive period. But we are going up, up, higher still. Who can tell? Ah, who can tell? With his hand he was examining the perpendicular wall, and in a few more minutes he continued. This is nice. Here is mica schist. Ah, presently we shall come to the transition period, and then— What did the professor mean? Could he be trying to measure the thickness of the crust of the earth that lay between us and the world above? Had he any means of making this calculation? No, he had not the aneroid, and no guessing could supply its place. Still the temperature kept rising, and I felt myself steeped in a broiling atmosphere. I could only compare it to the heat of a furnace at the moment when the molten metal is running into the mold. Gradually we had been obliged to throw aside our coats and waistcoats, the lightest covering became uncomfortable and even painful. "'Are we rising into a fiery furnace?' I cried at one moment when the heat was redoubling. "'No,' replied my uncle, "'that is impossible, quite impossible.' "'Yet,' I answered, feeling the wall, "'this well is burning hot.' At the same moment, touching the water, I had to withdraw my hand in haste. "'The water is scalding!' I cried. This time the professor's only answer was an angry gesture. Then an unconquerable terror seized upon me, from which I could no longer get free. I felt that a catastrophe was approaching before which the boldest spirit must quail. A dim, vague notion laid hold of my mind, but which was fast hardening into certainty. I tried to repel it, but it would return. I dared not express it in plain terms. Yet a few involuntary observations confirmed me in my view. By the flickering light of the torch I could distinguish contortions in the granite beds. A phenomenon was unfolding in which electricity would play the principal part. Then this unbearable heat this boiling water. I consulted the compass. The compass had lost its properties. It had ceased to act properly. End of chapter 42「Chapter 43 of A Journey into the Interior of the Earth by Jules Verne, translated by Frederick Mallison. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 43 Shot Out of a Volcano at Last Yes, our compass was no longer a guide. The needle flew from pole to pole with a kind of frenzied impulse. It ran round the dial, and spun hither and thither as if it were giddy or intoxicated. I knew quite well that according to the best-received theories the mineral covering of the globe is never at absolute rest. The changes brought about by the chemical decomposition of its component parts, the agitation caused by great liquid torrents, and the magnetic currents are continually tending to disturb it, even when living beings upon its surface may fancy that all is quiet below. A phenomenon of this kind would not have greatly alarmed me, or at any rate it would not have given rise to dreadful apprehensions. But other facts, other circumstances of a peculiar nature came to reveal to me by degrees the true state of the case. There came incessant and continuous explosions. 
I could only compare them to the loud rattle of a long train of chariots, driven at full speed over the stones, or a roar of intermitting thunder. Then the disordered compass, thrown out of gear by the electric currents, confirmed me in a growing conviction. The mineral crust of the globe threatened to burst up, the granite foundations to come together with a crash, the fissure through which we were helplessly driven would be filled up, the void would be full of crushed fragments of rock, and we poor wretched mortals were to be buried and annihilated in this dreadful consummation. "'My uncle!' I cried. "'We are lost now, utterly lost!' "'What are you in a fright about now?' was the calm rejoinder. "'What is the matter with you?' "'The matter? Look at those quaking walls! Look at those shivering rocks! Don't you feel the burning heat? Don't you see how the water boils and bubbles? Are you blind to the dense vapors and steam growing thicker and denser every minute? See this agitated compass-needle? It is an earthquake that is threatening us!' My undaunted uncle calmly shook his head. "'Do you think,' said he, "'an earthquake is coming?' "'I do. Well, I think you are mistaken. What? Don't you recognize the symptoms? Of an earthquake? No. I am looking out for something better. What can you mean? Explain. It is an eruption, Axel. An eruption? Do you mean to affirm that we are running up the shaft of a volcano? I believe we are, said the indomitable professor with an air of perfect self-possession. And it is the best thing that could possibly happen to us under our circumstances. The best thing? Was my uncle Stark mad? What did the man mean? And what was the use of saying facetious things at a time like this? What? I shouted. Are we being taken up in an eruption? Our fate has flung us here among burning lavas, molten rocks, boiling waters, and all kinds of volcanic matter. We are going to be pitched out, expelled, tossed up, vomited, spit out high into the air along with fragments of rock, showers of ashes and scoria, in the midst of a towering rush of smoke and flames, and it is the best thing that could happen to us?" "'Yes,' replied the professor, eyeing me over his spectacles. "'I don't see any other way of reaching the surface of the earth.' I passed rapidly over the thousand ideas which passed through my mind. My uncle was right, undoubtedly right and never had he seemed to me more daring and more confirmed in his notions than at this moment when he was calmly contemplating the chances of being shot out of a volcano. In the meantime up we went. The night passed away in continual ascent. The din and uproar around us became more and more intensified. I was stifled and stunned. I thought my last hour was approaching and yet imagination is such a strong thing that even in this supreme hour I was occupied with strange and almost childish speculations. But I was the victim, not the master of my own thoughts. It was very evident that we were being hurried upward upon the crest of a wave of eruption. Beneath our raft were boiling waters, and under these the more sluggish lava was working its way up in a heated mass together with shoals of fragments of rock which, when they arrived at the crater, would be dispersed in all directions high and low. We were imprisoned in the shaft or chimney of some volcano. There was no room to doubt of that. But this time, instead of Snefell, an extinct volcano, 
we were inside one in full activity. I wondered, therefore, where could this mountain be, and in what part of the world we were to be shot out. I made no doubt but that it would be in some northern region. Before its disorder set in, the needle had never deviated from that direction. From Cape Sacknessum we had been carried due north for hundreds of leagues. Were we under Iceland again? Were we destined to be thrown up out of Hecla, or by which of the seven other fiery craters in that island? Within a radius of five hundred leagues to the west, I remembered under this parallel of latitude only the imperfectly known volcanoes of the northeast coast of America. To the east there was only one in the eightieth degree of north latitude, the S. Ganyan Mayan Island, not far from Spitsbergen. Certainly there was no lack of craters, and there were some capacious enough to throw out a whole army. But I wanted to know which of them was to serve us for an exit from the inner world. Towards morning the ascending movement became accelerated. If the heat increased, instead of diminishing, as we approached nearer to the surface of the globe, this effect was due to local causes alone, and those volcanic. The manner of our locomotion left no doubt in my mind. An enormous force, a force of hundreds of atmospheres, generated by the extreme pressure of confined vapors, was driving us irresistibly forward. But to what numberless dangers it exposed us! Soon lurid lights began to penetrate the vertical gallery which widened as we went up. Right and left I could see deep channels, like huge tunnels, out of which escaped dense volumes of smoke. Tongues of fire lapped the walls, which crackled and sputtered under the intense heat. "'See, see, my uncle!' I cried. "'Well, those are only sulfurous flames and vapors, which one must expect to see in an eruption. They are quite natural. But suppose they should wrap us round. But they won't wrap us round. But we shall be stifled. We shall not be stifled at all. The gallery is widening, and if it becomes necessary, we shall abandon the raft and creep into a crevice. But the water, the rising water! There is no more water, Axel, only a lava paste, which is bearing us up on its surface to the top of the crater. The liquid column had indeed disappeared, to give place to dense and still boiling eruptive matter of all kinds. The temperature was becoming unbearable. A thermometer exposed to this atmosphere would have marked a hundred and fifty degrees. The perspiration streamed from my body. But for the rapidity of our ascent we should have been suffocated. But the professor gave up his idea of abandoning the raft, and it was well he did. However roughly joined together, those planks afforded us a firmer support than we could have found anywhere else. About eight in the morning a new incident occurred. The upward movement ceased. The raft lay motionless. "'What is this?' I asked, shaken by this sudden stoppage as if by a shock. "'It is a halt,' replied my uncle. "'Is the eruption checked?' I asked. "'I hope not.' I rose and tried to look around me. Perhaps the raft itself, stopped in its course by a projection, was staying the volcanic torrent. If this were the case, we should have to release it as soon as possible. But it was not so. The blast of ashes, scorix, and rubbish had ceased to rise. "'Has the eruption stopped?' I cried. "'Ah!' said my uncle between his clenched teeth. "'You are afraid. 
but don't alarm yourself. This lull cannot last long. It has lasted now five minutes, and in a short time we shall resume our journey to the mouth of the crater." As he spoke, the professor continued to consult his chronometer, and he was again right in his prognostications. The raft was soon hurried and driven forward with a rapid but irregular movement, which lasted about ten minutes and then stopped again. "'Very good,' said my uncle. "'In ten minutes more we shall be off again, for our present business lies with an intermittent volcano. It gives us time now and then to take a breath.' This was perfectly true. When the ten minutes were over we started off again with renewed and increased speed. We were obliged to lay fast hold of the planks of the raft, not to be thrown off. Then again the paroxysm was over. I have since reflected upon this singular phenomenon without being able to explain it. At any rate, it was clear that we were not in the main shaft of the volcano, but in a lateral gallery, where there were felt recurrent tunes of reaction. How often this operation was repeated I cannot say. All I know is that at each fresh impulse we were hurled forward with a greatly increased force, and we seemed as if we were mere projectiles. During the short halts we were stifled with the heat. Whilst we were being projected forward the hot air almost stopped my breath. I thought for a moment how delightful it would be to find myself carried suddenly into the Arctic regions, with a cold thirty degrees below the freezing point. My overheated brain conjured up visions of white plains of cool snow, where I might roll and allay my feverish heat. Little by little my brain, weakened by so many constantly repeated shocks, seemed to be giving way altogether. But for the strong arm of Hans I should more than once have had my head broken against the granite roof of our burning dungeon. I have, therefore, no exact recollection of what took place during the following hours. I have a confused impression left of continuous explosions, loud detonations, a general shaking of the rocks all round us, and of a spinning movement with which our raft was once whirled helplessly round. It rocked upon the lava torrent, amidst a dense fall of ashes. Snorting flames darted their fiery tongues at us. There were wild, fierce puffs of stormy wind from below, resembling the blasts of vast iron furnaces blowing all at one time and I caught a glimpse of the figure of Hans lighted up by the fire. And all the feeling I had left was just what I imagined must be the feeling of an unhappy criminal, doomed to be blown away alive from the mouth of a cannon, just before the trigger is pulled, and the flying limbs and rags of flesh and skin fill the quivering air and spatter the blood-stained ground. End of chapter 43 Chapter 44 of A Journey into the Interior of the Earth by Jules Verne, translated by Frederick Mallison. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 44 Sunny Lands in the Blue Mediterranean. When I opened my eyes again, I felt myself grasped by the belt with the strong hand of our guide. With the other arm, he supported my uncle. I was not seriously hurt but I was shaken and bruised and battered all over. I found myself lying on the sloping side of a mountain only two yards from a gaping gulf, which would have swallowed me up had I leaned at all that way. Hans had saved me from death whilst I lay rolling on the edge of the crater. "'Where are we?' 
asked my uncle irascibly, as if he felt much injured by being landed upon the earth again. The hunter shook his head in token of complete ignorance. "'Is it Iceland?' I asked. "'Nay,' replied Hans. "'What? Not Iceland?' cried the professor. "'Hans must be mistaken,' I said, raising myself up. This was our final surprise after all the astonishing events of our wonderful journey. I expected to see a white cone covered with the eternal snow of ages, rising from the midst of the barren deserts of the icy north, faintly lighted with the pale rays of the Arctic sun, far away in the highest latitudes known. But contrary to all our expectations, my uncle, the Icelander, and myself, were sitting halfway down a mountain baked under the burning rays of a southern sun, which was blistering us with the heat, and blinding us with the fierce light of its nearly vertical rays. I could not believe my own eyes. But the heated air and the sensation of burning left me no room for doubt. We had come out of the crater half-naked, and the radiant orb to which we had been strangers for two months was lavishing upon us, out of his blazing splendors, more of his light and heat than we were able to receive with comfort. When my eyes had become accustomed to the bright light to which they had been so long strangers, I began to use them to set my imagination right. At least I would have it to be Spitzbergen, and I was in no humor to give up this notion. The professor was the first to speak, and said, "'Well, this is not much like Iceland.' "'But is it Jan Mayen?' I asked. "'Nor that either,' he answered. "'There is no northern mountain. Here are no granite peaks capped with snow.' Look, Axel, look!" Above our heads, at a height of five hundred feet or more, we saw the crater of a volcano, the which, at intervals of fifteen minutes or so, there issued with loud explosions lofty columns of fire, mingled with pumice-stones, ashes, and flowing lava. I could feel the heaving of the mountain, which seemed to breathe like a huge whale, and puff out fire and wind from its vast blowholes. Beneath, down a pretty steep declivity, ran streams of lava for eight or nine hundred feet, giving the mountain a height of about thirteen hundred or fourteen hundred feet. But the base of the mountain was hidden in a perfect bower of rich verdure, amongst which I was able to distinguish the olive, the fig, and vines, covered with their luscious purple bunches. I was forced to confess that there was nothing arctic here. When the eye passed beyond these green surroundings, it rested on a wide, blue expanse of sea or lake, which appeared to enclose this enchanting island, within a compass of only a few leagues. Eastward lay a pretty little white seaport town or village, with a few houses scattered around it. And in the harbour, of which a few vessels of peculiar rig were gently swayed by the softly swelling waves. Beyond it groups of islets rose from the smooth blue waters, but in such numbers that they seemed to dot the sea like a shoal. To the west, distant coasts lined the dim horizon, on some rose blue mountains of smooth undulating forms. On a more distant coast arose a prodigious cone crowned on its summit with a snowy plume of white cloud. To the northward lay spread a vast sheet of water, sparkling and dancing under the hot bright rays, the uniformity broken here and there by the topmast of a gallant ship appearing above the horizon, or a swelling sail moving slowly before the wind. This unforeseen spectacle was most charming to eyes long used to underground darkness. "'Where are we? Where are we?' I asked faintly. Hans closed his eyes with lazy indifference. 
What did it matter to him? My uncle looked round with dumb surprise. "'Well, whatever mountain this may be,' he said at last, "'it is very hot here. The explosions are going on still, and I don't think it would look well to have come out by an eruption and then to get our heads broken by bits of falling rock. Let us get down, then we shall know better what we are about. Besides, I am starving and parching with thirst.' Decidedly, the professor was not given to contemplation. For my part, I could for another hour or two have forgotten my hunger and my fatigue to enjoy the lovely scene before me, but I had to follow my companions. The slope of the volcano was in many places of great steepness. We slid down screes of ashes, carefully avoiding the lava streams which glided sluggishly by us like fiery serpents. As we went I chattered and asked all sorts of questions as to our whereabouts, for I was too much excited not to talk a great deal. "'We are in Asia,' I cried, "'on the coasts of India, in the Malay Islands, or in Oceania. We have passed through half the globe and come out nearly at the Antipodes.' "'But the compass?' said my uncle. "'Aye, the compass,' I said, greatly puzzled. "'According to the compass we have gone northward.' Has it lied? Surely not. Could it lie? Unless, indeed, this is the North Pole. Oh, no, it is not the Pole, but—well, here was something that baffled us completely. I could not tell what to say. But now we were coming into that delightful greenery, and I was suffering greatly from hunger and thirst. Happily, after two hours' walking, a charming country lay open before us, covered with olive trees, pomegranate trees, and delicious vines, all of which seemed to belong to anybody who pleased to claim them. Besides, in our state of destitution and famine we were not likely to be particular. Oh, the inexpressible pleasure of pressing those cool sweet fruits to our lips, and eating grapes by mouthfuls off the rich full bunches! Not far off in the grass, under the delicious shade of the trees, I discovered a spring of fresh cool water, in which we luxuriously bathed our faces, hands, and feet. Whilst we were thus enjoying the sweets of repose, a child appeared out of a grove of olive trees. "'Ah!' I cried, "'here is an inhabitant of this happy land!' It was but a poor boy, miserably ill-clad, a sufferer from poverty, and our aspect seemed to alarm him a great deal. In fact, only half-clothed, with ragged hair and beards, we were a suspicious-looking party. And if the people of the country knew anything about thieves, we were very likely to frighten them. Just as the poor little wretch was going to take to his heels, Hans caught hold of him and brought him to us, kicking and struggling. My uncle began to encourage him as well as he could, and said to him in good German, "'Was heist Berg, mein Knablein? Sage mir geschwind!' What is this mountain called, my little friend?" The child made no answer. "'Very well,' said my uncle. "'I infer that we are not in Germany.' He put the same question in English. We got no forwarder. I was a good deal puzzled. "'Is the child dumb?' cried the professor, who, proud of his knowledge of many languages, now tried French. "'Comment appeler en cette montagne, mon enfant?' Silence still. Now let us try Italian, said my uncle, and he said, Dove noi siamo? Yes, where are we? I impatiently repeated. But there was no answer still. Will you speak when you are told? 
exclaimed my uncle, shaking the urchin by the ears. Come si noma questa isola. Stromboli, replied the little herd-boy, slipping out of Hans's hands and scudding into the plain across the olive-trees. We were hardly thinking of that. Stromboli! What an effect this unexpected name produced upon my mind! We were in the midst of the Mediterranean Sea, on an island of the Aeolian archipelago, in the ancient Strangel, where Aeolus kept the winds and the storms chained up, to be let loose at his will. And those distant blue mountains in the east were the mountains of Calabria, and that threatening volcano far away in the south was the fierce Etna. "'Stromboli! Stromboli!' I repeated. My uncle kept time to my exclamations with hands and feet, as well as with words. We seemed to be chanting in chorus. What a journey we had accomplished! How marvellous! Having entered by one volcano, we had issued out of another more than two thousand miles from Snaefell and from that barren, faraway Iceland. The strange chances of our expedition had carried us into the heart of the fairest region in the world. We had exchanged the bleak regions of perpetual snow and of impenetrable barriers of ice for those of brightness and the rich hues of all glorious things. We had left over our heads the murky sky and cold fogs of the frigid zone to revel under the azure sky of Italy. After our delicious repast of fruits and cold clear water, we set off again to reach the port of Stromboli. It would not have been wise to tell how we came there. The superstitious Italians would have set us down for fire-devils vomited out of hell, so we presented ourselves in the humble guise of shipwrecked mariners. It was not so glorious, but it was safer. On my way I could hear my uncle murmuring, "'But the compass, that compass, it pointed due north. How are we to explain that fact?' "'My opinion is,' I replied disdainfully, "'that it is best not to explain it. That is the easiest way to shelve the difficulty.' "'Deed, sir! The occupant of a professorial chair at the Johannium, unable to explain the reason of a cosmical phenomenon, why, it would be simply disgraceful!" And as he spoke, my uncle, half undressed, in rags, a perfect scarecrow, with his leathern belt around him, settling his spectacles upon his nose and looking learned and imposing, was himself again, the terrible German professor of mineralogy. One hour after we had left the Grove of Olives, we arrived at the little port of San Vincenzo, where Hans claimed his thirteen weeks' wages, which was counted out to him with a hearty shaking of hands all round. At that moment, if he did not share our natural emotion, at least his countenance expanded in a manner very unusual with him, and while with the ends of his fingers he lightly pressed our hands, I believe he smiled. End of chapter 44《Chapter 45 of A Journey into the Interior of the Earth by Jules Verne, translated by Frederick Mallison. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 45 All's Well That Ends Well. Such is the conclusion of a history which I cannot expect everybody to believe, for some people will believe nothing against the testimony of their own experience. However, I am indifferent to their incredulity, and they may believe as much or as little as they please. The Stromboliotes received us kindly as shipwrecked mariners. They gave us food and clothing. 
After waiting forty-eight hours on the thirty-first of August, a small craft took us to Messina, where a few days' rest completely removed the effect of our fatigues. On Friday, September 4th, we embarked on the steamer Volturno, employed by the French Massageries Imperiales, and in three days more we were at Marseille, having no care on our minds except that abominable deceitful compass, which we had mislaid somewhere and could not now examine. But its inexplicable behavior exercised my mind fearfully. On the ninth of September in the evening we arrived at Hamburg. I cannot describe to you the astonishment of Martha or the joy of Grauben. "'Now you are a hero, Axel,' said to me my blushing fiancé, my betrothed. "'You will not leave me again.' I looked tenderly upon her, and she smiled through her tears. How can I describe the extraordinary sensation produced by the return of Professor Liedenbrock? Thanks to Martha's ineradicable tattling, the news that the professor had gone to discover a way to the center of the earth had spread over the whole civilized world. People refused to believe it, and when they saw him they would not believe him any the more. Still, the appearance of Hans and sundry pieces of intelligence derived from Iceland tended to shake the confidence of the unbelievers. Then my uncle became a great man and I was now the nephew of a great man, which is not a privilege to be despised. Hamburg gave a great fete in our honor. A public audience was given to the professor at the Johanneum, at which he told all about our expedition, with only one omission, the unexplained and inexplicable behavior of our compass. On the same day, with much state, he deposited in the archives of the city the now famous document of Sacknesum, and expressed his regret that circumstances over which he had no control had prevented him from following to the very center of the earth the track of the learned Icelander. He was modest notwithstanding his glory, and he was all the more famous for his humility. So much honor could not but excite envy. There were those who envied him his fame, and as his theories, resting upon known facts, were in opposition to the systems of science upon the question of the central fire, he sustained with his pen and by his voice remarkable discussions with the learned of every country. For my part, I cannot agree with his theory of gradual cooling. In spite of what I have seen and felt, I believe, and always shall believe, in the central heat. But I admit that certain circumstances not yet sufficiently understood may tend to modify in places the action of natural phenomena. While these questions were being debated with great animation, my uncle met with a real sorrow. Our faithful Hans, in spite of our entreaties, had left Hamburg. The man to whom we owed all our success, and our lives too, would not suffer us to reward him as we could have wished. He was seized with a mal de pay, a complaint for which we have not even a name in English. Farval, said he one day, and with that simple word he left us and sailed for Reykjavik, which he reached in safety. We were strongly attached to our brave Eiderdown hunter. Though far away in the remotest north, he will never be forgotten by those whose lives he protected, and certainly I shall not fail to endeavor to see him once more before I die. To conclude, I have to add that this journey into the interior of the earth created a wonderful sensation in the world, 
It was translated into all civilized languages. The leading newspapers extracted the most interesting passages, which were commented upon, picked to pieces, discussed, attacked, and defended with equal enthusiasm and determination, both by believers and skeptics. Rare privilege! My uncle enjoyed during his lifetime the glory he had deservedly won. And he may even boast the distinguished honor of an offer from Mr. Barnum, to exhibit him on most advantageous terms in all the principal cities in the United States. But there was one dead fly amidst all this glory and honor. One fact, one incident, of the journey remained a mystery. Now to a man eminent for his learning, an unexplained phenomenon is an unbearable hardship. Well, it was yet reserved for my uncle to be completely happy. One day, while arranging a collection of minerals in his cabinet, I noticed in a corner this unhappy compass, which we had long lost sight of. I opened it and began to watch it. It had been in that corner for six months, little mindful of the trouble it was giving. Suddenly, to my intense astonishment, I noticed a strange fact, and I uttered a cry of surprise. "'What is the matter?' my uncle asked. "'That compass!' Well. See, its poles are reversed. Reversed? Yes, they point the wrong way. My uncle looked, he compared, and the house shook with his triumphant leap of exultation. A light broke in upon his spirit and mine. See there, he cried, as soon as he was able to speak. After our arrival at Cape Sacknessum, the north pole of the needle of this confounded compass began to point south instead of north. Evidently. Here, then, is the explanation of our mistake. But what phenomenon could have caused this reversal of the poles? The reason is evident, uncle. Tell me, then, Axel. During the electric storm on the Liedenbrock Sea, that ball of fire, which magnetized all the iron on board, reversed the poles of our magnet. Aha! Aha! shouted the professor with a loud laugh. So it was just an electric joke! From that day forth the professor was the most glorious of savants, and I was the happiest of men. For my pretty Verlin days, resigning her place as ward, took her position in the old house on the Königstrasse, in the double capacity of niece to my uncle and wife to a certain happy youth. What is the need of adding that the illustrious Otto Liedenbrock, corresponding member of all the scientific, geographical, and mineralogical societies of all the civilized world, was now her uncle and mine. End of chapter 45 End of A Journey into the Interior of the Earth by Jules Verne, translated by Frederick Mallison Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.